millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You've tuned in to Sci-Fi Fidelity, Episode 68, Carnival Row. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. It's Mike and Dave with you here with another edition of Sci-Fi Fidelity for season five. And we're back with some show topics after being a month off. And Carnival Row is a great one to start with. It sure is. And I can't believe it's been five years already. Five years since we started this podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Well, not quite. Season five did start sort of towards the end of the fourth year, but and I think we picked a good time. We missed a couple of shows in the in the meantime. I know The Boys on Amazon was a potential show topic, and I know a lot of people have enjoyed that show. But we didn't miss much else. August was kind of like the calm before the storm, and I think we're going to start getting some premiere dates coming hard and fast in the coming months. And uh, I was happy that the streaming services, uh, Amazon and Netflix, gave us Carnival Row and The Dark Crystal next week to talk about in September. <laughs> I was going to say, we got some good ones to talk about. And I just have to give you some props because number one, I hate writing spoiler free reviews. Dude, your spoiler free review for Carnival Row is just awesome. And now how do you mean? How did, was it helpful to you? Or <laughs> It was absolutely helpful and it didn't give anything away. Yeah, that's a, that's a tough challenge with those. And especially since I took tons of notes uh, while I was watching this series uh, most of which gets discarded. You know, there's, this is a pretty complex show. There's a lot of characters. There's a lot of world building. So you, you never know which details are going to be important to a spoiler free review, which details are going to be important to a podcast. So I'll be interested to see, this is your show topic. So I'll be interested to see which details you hone in on. Right now, right off the bat, I still don't know what to make of this show yet. I just know that I love it. And it's created by Travis Beecham and Renee Echeverria. And Renee Echeverria is a name that I know from my Dark Angel podcast days, but you may know him from Star Trek Deep Space Nine. He was the showrunner, I believe, for Terra Nova. So, you know, he's got a large body of work. Travis Beecham is is still early in his career, but they have put together just you mentioned the the term world building and boy is it a shame we didn't have this to look at when we were doing our world building podcast yeah but it's on amazon video there are eight episodes it was renewed for a second season even before season one dropped so uh, sometimes you wonder how they make that determination perhaps it's media buzz and and they just know it's going to be a hit Yeah, who knows? But one thing that is sure, and that is that the ending left a lot of questions up in the air. And so it was definitely something that they were counting on being able to have a season two to explore. But that brings up a big point, which is that as per usual, and we're going to try and hold fast to this rule even more strictly in season five, we're going to be talking about just the first two episodes 
And then we have a spoiler zone towards the end of the podcast. For those of you who have watched more where I'll just be sharing some commentary about some of that stuff that's going to be leading into season two. It won't be a whole lot of commentary. It'll just be touching on it uh, so that everyone can get full enjoyment out of this discussion. And Dave, you've only seen the first two episodes, correct? That, that is correct. And, you know, we've been down this road before. Yeah. We're going <laughs> to. We'll hint at stuff. Exactly. So, uh, well, let's go ahead and get started. We're going to talk about episode one, Some Dark God Wakes, and episode two, Ashling. And the basic premise, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on the premise, but we find ourselves seven years after the end of a war between two human factions, the Berg and the Pact. Caught in the middle are the Fae, these mythological creatures who turn up in any of a number of fantasy tales. I certainly uh, became reacquainted with the term when I covered Lost Girl for with a podcast. Right. But the Fae now are attempting to coexist with citizens of the Berg after they were forced to flee their homeland, which is occupied by the Pact. Now, you've seen the whole thing, so... As you said, it's such a complex, rich story. If if I get anything wrong, make sure you jump in there. Yeah, and the main thing that I covered in my spoiler-free review that praised this show was that they could have stopped there and made it into an allegory for a refugee crisis, right? right. And that would have been very heavy-handed. Do you agree? <laughs> uh, I do. And, and we've talked about this many times, the social commentary that so many shows – uh, inject into their storyline. And, and again, sometimes they just come across far too heavy handed. And I, I'm a little torn that that would be a drawback for me about this show. I, you know, not a major because I fully intend to watch the rest of it. I, I really do love this. And I know you love the Victorian feel, which I do as well. Do you feel there's enough there to bring up steampunk? I think so. Yeah. Steampunk does have certain technological advances like automatons and steam powered things that can't possibly exist to things like that, which this does not indulge in. But yeah, I do feel like this has steampunk elements to it, but I do want to follow up on that statement because as I mentioned in my spoiler free review, if they had stopped at the refugee crisis, they would have been doing a great disservice to the story and it would have felt very much like they had an agenda but because they touched on every possible aspect of a oppressed culture that they possibly could get, I just think they just did a wonderful job of symbolically representing pretty much any kind of exploitation you can think of, including things like, uh, you know, raiding Egypt for spoils of antiquities and bringing them back to the United Kingdom or, you know, metaphors for, uh, not just immigration and refugee crisis, but also, you know, just ha having a culture and respecting that culture, um, whether it be historically or in a contemporary fashion. And there's even more, which I'll get to in the spoiler zone, which uh, covers a third aspect that maybe was not expected. So that's why I think this show did a good job of keeping its social commentary in a grand enough scale that it didn't feel like they were preaching at us yeah and i think one of the central characters rycroft Philostrait, played by orlando bloom just from the start the fact that this is just a good man that is blind to the various races and he just sees people 
as people. And we go back to what really is the central story arc. And on the one hand, there's this police procedural going on in the background with the unseely Jack murders. And I wonder if it's an allusion to Jack the Ripper. You know, we mentioned the whole 19th century feel, which I think any viewer would instantly recognize, but it's actually the seventh century. So, yeah, (laughs) Yeah. they have different geography. This is the kind of thing that there needs to be a map in the front of the book (laughs) for us to be able to see what's going on. And I think they probably are trying to go for a Game of Thrones feel in that respect, but it's definitely unique from that show. So, but yeah, it's Victorian England, but totally not. So every single piece of context that we have has a new twist on it. Exactly. So we've got the Fae living openly among the humans, but you know, even the police prejudice is instantly apparent until Philo, who's the inspector, he puts a stop to it on his way to investigating a case. So he sort of establishes character right away. And we learn that every three weeks there's been an attack on the Fae folk. And as we begin episode one the three weeks is up so he's trying his best to prevent another attack and he decides that one of his primary suspects you know as we see him in the early stages of this case is one of his own police officers well yeah and i think it's interesting that he's not only fighting a system that might actually be supporting the person doing the crime but all, or at least he thinks so at first, but also complete indifference because they're like, why should we care about a dead puck or a dead picks? You know, the different terms they have talking about a dead critch, like it's not something that they should equate with needing police attention. Right. And I think they really do a good job of passing suspicion from one character to another without it seeming random. And you know, once Philo makes that connection with the submariners that come into port every three weeks and, you know, the one witness that he has mentions wearing a uniform. And at first he thought it was the police uniform. And of course, you know, once we hear the description, bald head, mutton chops, uniform, and, you know, we instantly suspect one of the police officers, but it, it does seem to move away. And of course, another Dead Fay does turn up, and this is Ashling Corell, a singer, but the MO is different. So he thinks he trapped the killer. He thinks the killer jumps to his death, but now he's got another murder on his hands of a Fay folk, but the circumstances are radically different. And that's what's so great about this setup is that they needed the first two episodes to build the world. Give us a context. Let us know what we were talking about. Introduce all the jargon, which there was plenty of as well. And so I think this initial Unseelie Jack mystery is supposed to evoke Sherlock Holmes a little bit because it definitely is a very classic detective story structure to it, don't you think? Oh, I do. And I just love Philo because he he just skirts that edge between being a by-the-book officer who, who wants to do what's right, but he understands and is not afraid to cross that line so that when he can't get permission to conduct an autopsy, oh, he's got a guy on, on the side <laughs> a puck. that, you know, you're right, right. His go-to Faye doc who performs off the book autopsies for him. 
And once he puts the corpse back together, because that was probably the only truly gruesome scene in the first two episodes. Plenty Uh, more to come. (laughs) uh, Plenty more to come. Okay. And and he puts the body back together, but the liver is missing. So now they have to figure, well, was that deliberate or because of the murder scene where body parts, uh, intestines are strewn about, did they just miss it? So we don't find that out at this point but it certainly is one of those mysteries that and you know and again i think we've we've been down that road before with uh psychos stealing the liver i forget what the actual reason is but we've seen that before and they certainly are going to go down this road so basically you've got the unseelie jack to introduce things this mystery that they're setting up in the second episode carries through the rest of the season so it's kind of cool that they have that introductory case first and then go on to the main storyline. It's not a very conventional way to do it, but it works out really well. Right. And Philo is forced to really call on any of a number of off the book help because he's not getting help from his superior. That's for sure. So he, he visits this guy, Darius in prison and, it appears that they are friends from the war, but of course we don't know why Darius is in jail, but then it seems to me, and maybe I heard it wrong that, that Philo drops this kind of off the cuff comment that he doesn't really have to be there. So I probably got that wrong and, and I'm sure we'll find out. (laughs) Yeah, you will. And the Darius storyline is great because it's not completely fulfilled by the end of the season. So I think there's plenty of Darius storyline to come because all we get is kind of a flashback to explain things and there's still more that they could do with this character. So I, I love the potential that that has for a season two. Right. And as if these mythological Fae aren't enough, one of the Fae women comes to the police station to anoint Ashling's body for proper burial. And she's apparently some kind of seer also and tells Philo that the killer was neither man nor fae, And now we're perhaps entering the world of magic, which would not be a bad thing as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. And they treat magic with a very light touch in this series, which I think is a good way to do it. It's folk magic. It could be seen either way. Some people might see it as just plain superstition, whereas the fae know that it has a deeper significance, but it's not flashy, you know, it just basically has a religious feel to it, a ritualistic feel to it. So, so I like how they did that to make it a little bit more grounded. Right now, the secondary story arc centers around vignette stone moss played by Cara Delevingne, who you may or may not know was a supermodel turned actress at one time. And she was in Valerian uh, city of a thousand planets is, I think that's the correct title, which I thought she was really good in it. I I know most people didn't like the movie, but it definitely had its points. Well, she definitely looks fey. You know, she has the fey appearance even as a person walking around in real life, much less in this show where she's made up. Right. So she is a fey pixie. She's got wings so she can fly. And now we don't really get a sense for how high she can fly or how long (laughs) she can fly. But this story arc centers around what happened between Vignette and Philo during the war, because we're certainly left with the impression that they had some sort of a romantic relationship that did not end well. And of course, we learn that he deliberately led her to believe that he was dead. And of course, now that she knows, 
there's a lot there, but we're given all of these little comments that lead us to wonder what exactly happened. He apparently did something in the war that she knows about, and it doesn't seem as if it's directly related to their relationship so that there's something else there. Yeah. And they, uh, you gotta love how they unspool this because some people are not huge fans of flashbacks, but I think this series does them very well and doles out the information so that it reveals things about the present in a very understandable manner, but also it's pleasant narratively to, to watch it come to light bit by bit. It's like you're shining the light on the story. Yeah. And our first introduction to her is as this freedom fighter who not only exhibits acute strength, but also compassion to help, you know, the people that she's trying to get away from the pact. But, you know, when we really examine it and she even says this herself, she's in this morally gray area because on the one hand, she's selling these Fey from one servitude toward another. Well, certain death to indentured servitude, right? <laughs> yes. So she still sees it as a morally gray area, but I think in her heart, she knows she's giving these people their best option. And of course, as the viewer, we understand that as well. Right. And then she, of course, has to take that burden on herself because, you know, I think she realizes she's done with this. She can only save so many people from uh, her own land and it's time to maybe make a life for herself, even if she has to pay off her debts as well. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Now, we then get to see Philo in his living conditions, and he's having an affair with Portia Fife played by Maeve Dermody, who I know from a show called Marcella, which is a British detective show that she was just amazing in. Frankenstein Chronicles, which is a show that I, it's on my radar. I haven't just seen it, but he's having an affair with her. And right away after they have sex, she's asking about this scar and he won't tell her how he got it beyond the war. And their relationship, it just seems to be, this vehicle for her to keep asking pointed questions that he won't answer. <laughs> yeah. And I really suspected her at first because of that. Like, does she have some sort of ulterior motive, but no, actually she's just a busybody. <laughs> but I, I have the feeling that as the revelations about this scar and his time in the war unfold, it's funny because you look back on it and you go, how did I not see this coming? 
the secret that he's trying to hide from her. So I'll be interested to see once you get farther into it, what you think of it and how, how you, whether or not you saw it coming. Cause I certainly did not. And yet it seems so obvious to me in hindsight. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, and, and I love the relationship she has with her friend who's a prostitute and their early conversation where vignette sees herself sort of the same way, as you said, selling people into indentured servitude. And that's of course, when she's given the news that Philo's alive. Okay. You know, it, it just seems a lot of the shows I'm covering these days for dead of geek have some pieces of cringe worthy dialogue <laughs> in them. This isn't one of them, but he will look into my eyes and know. <laughs> okay. I mean, it, it certainly lets us know how angry she is and, and gets us really drawn into this mystery that we assume at this point has to do with their relationship. But as you just alluded, there's something else at play as well. We see her in her role as a servant. And we'll talk about that in a little bit with the Spurn Rose family, but we see her change back into her own clothes, takes a knife from the kitchen and then cuts the braid that holds meaning about her relationship with Philo. And then she flies away. So we certainly assume she intends to go kill him or at least maim him. I guess at that point, we don't know her well enough or we don't know exactly what happened between the two of them. But then when she holds the knife to his throat, we learn that he perpetuated the lie that he died. And, you know, again, if you're going to kill him, kill him. Don't just sit there and draw it out. So we get the sense she's not going to kill him. No, and that's funny because you're right. That was a way strong reaction, cutting off the braid, if you're not going to follow through with it. <laughs> you know, I guess it was just she was caught up in the emotion of it. Uh, but then to move on from that and to have given up her, you know, given the servant role that she has is not for her. But now she's going to have to find some other way to make a living. But yeah, she kind of flew off the handle there, didn't she? Yeah, she did. And and certainly, you know, you've mentioned the plight of the immigrant refugees is certainly a focal point of this story. And we see vignette once she's taken into this home that there's some sort of wing inhibitor that is strapped on so that she can't fly away during work. Now, I don't know. I guess her own personal coat has little slats in it for her wings to go through. We don't ever see how that actually <laughs> works out. But we, we learn about Carnival Row and that there's this kind of mystery, this, this aura about Carnival Row, that it's got this inherent danger to it. And, you know, you're not supposed to go to Carnival Row. And it's the slums, right? <laughs> you're all ripe in the, you know, the houses of prostitution, the drug trade goes on there. She goes to look for a friend that she thinks might be there. And of course, that's what happens. And again, most of the Fae that we encounter are doing some sort of menial labor or we see a lot of them selling things. They, they have some sort of a business going on, whether it's selling fruit, vegetable, meats. But we see only one professional, and we don't necessarily see exactly what it is that he's up to. Right. And it's a nice culture that they've built there because, you know, they're not all great people. Just, you know, Philo has his friends that he can work with uh, because of his police colleagues not working with him. 
But, you know, this is this does have some danger to it in addition to it just being the only place that the fake can live in this culture that won't really allow them to mix with human society. Right. So she's indentured to the Spurnrose family, brother and sister, Ezra and Imogen. And he's was the owner of the ship that wrecked that that she was on and apparently has squandered the family fortune unbeknownst to his sister who has expensive tastes so so there's that conflict going on there that by the end of episode two she knows they don't have any money and you know when philo buys vignettes freedom for what seems to be a a relatively small sum she's pretty angry until she learns that that's basically what they have at this point but i think the most important thing we see out of the spurn rose is what a bitch Imogen is. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, she's an attractive woman. She's, I think she says 23, 24, 25, but she's Mm -hmm. unmarried and she's apparently buying and using some sort of a illicit perfume that whatever it has in it literally attracts men. Yeah, it's like a potion of some kind of love potion. Right. And in fact, she sends Vignette to buy her some at at one point. But once she learns that the mansion across the street has a new eligible bachelor moving in, she's, of course, excited. And she makes it her mission to be the first to go greet him. And it's quite a greeting, wouldn't you say? <laughs> I would say so. And what a great character this guy is. Mr. Agreus is a horned fay or a puck, as they say. I guess you could call him a fawn of sorts because they also have the hooves. But he's dressed to the nines. And how did this guy get his fortune? What is he doing across the street? How has he been able to get into this exclusive set of houses on this block and what's Imogen going to do now that she realizes her, (laughs) her chances at maybe landing a bachelor are not as great as they were. And maybe she'll take on a new mission to how dare this man move into our neighborhood Uh, and have a human servant as well. Yeah, that's great. The irony, right? So after we're presented with all of that, we see her walking in the park with Vignette. But of course, Vignette's forgotten the umbrella. It's about to rain. She sends her back. Of course, not in time. It starts to rain. No one will allow her to get under their umbrella until Mr. Agreus shows up. And at first, she's willing to get wet. So does a spark go off in her head? that yeah. maybe if I get under here, maybe I can, but, but what is it that she's possibly thinking? I mean, she can't possibly be considering marrying him. No, not at all. But it's, isn't it interesting how they do this? Because that scene you mentioned with the umbrella is just the first step in a long, I don't want to call it seduction because it's not purposeful necessarily, but you see, like you said, the sparks going off and it's, you know, on his side, on her side, they're both, can't figure out what is this that I'm feeling, but I can't possibly, I hate this situation. And yet, and yet, you know, this person is showing me kindness. It's a really well drawn out plot that kind of examines, uh, especially the upper class, but also just the flipping of expectation with this one Faye 
who against all odds has somehow amassed a fortune. And, and to be honest, we don't really get an answer to where this money came from even by the end of the season. So this subplot is one of the ones I'm really keeping my eye on for season two. Well, the other family that plays prominently in these first two episodes is the Breakspear family. And we we learned that Chancellor Breakspear, played by Jared Harris, who we all know from Fringe, The Expanse, and The Crown most recently. And, you know, we get the two Burgish political parties arguing in chambers. Again, we feel like we're in British Parliament uh, in the 19th century. But it establishes that his son Jonah is kind of a ne'er-do-well. He's the son of a rich man who really has no focus and it certainly becomes evident that the family's bailing him out of one scrape after another. And then finally he's abducted the, the son while at a whorehouse on Carnival Row. His mother's name is Lady Piety. And I'm thinking, okay, really? <laughs> but yeah. she brings a fae witch to her home to help find her son, which of course Uh, Her husband's vehemently opposed to. But what a twist when we find out that she is behind her son's kidnapping. So at this point, you know, is it simply to further and help her husband's political career so that the, the guilt points towards the opposition party? Or is it something else? Is it to teach her son a lesson? Or maybe it's both. Well, the the great thing about this plot, because this really kicks things off along with the crime that Philo is investigating. And you think these are just separate storylines and then they just start to come together and come together and things that seem unimportant at the beginning just blossom. And I think they purposely misdirect us as things go along. You're not supposed to know what she's up to. And so I I like that you picked up on the two, two aspects of it. Is she trying to further her husband's career or is she trying to teach her son a lesson? There's a many different angles they could go at this from. And it's leading us down the garden path because they keep us guessing the whole way down. But I have to say, if Lady Piety hadn't had this little twist, I would have been a, a not a fan at all of the Breakspear plotline because I really don't like the scenes that they have in Parliament where it seems like all they want to talk about is how second class the Fae are. And it doesn't come across very realistic as a political debate because, you know, obviously they would have other business and it seems very one dimensional in that respect. But this twist with Lady Piety just kind of (laughs) forgives everything, all those shortcomings. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking about Ezra, when he comes on sexually to Vignette and tells her flat out that she can work her debt off more quickly if she acquiesces to his advances and she says no and she leaves but now she's out of work goes to her friend that works as a prostitute and suggests that she too could work there and they have a nice little scene where her (laughs) her friend teases her about her her lack of sexual ability and she's like yeah you know i'm good and she yeah. Goes, yeah, you're right. You are good. Well, that's the thing, too. These two have a relationship that's both friend and former lover. So I think that's that's great that they have that dynamic, but it's not overplayed. Right. So uh, it's definitely a situation where you can see Vignette going through the process. What am I going to do now? And this ain't it. <laughs> right. So. Her friend puts her in touch with the leader of this crime syndicate. She goes to meet the group, which is run by uh, a ruthless woman, Dahlia. 
And we get that scene. And, and again, it, it serves a few purposes. I think, number one, it, it shows Vignette what she'll be in for if she joins this organization, because, you know, the, the runner was caught by the police, held in police custody for a while and was not giving the correct answers. So Dahlia just throws him over the roof to his death. And that certainly lets her know what she's in for. She's tasked to bring back the banner that hangs in the police station and vignettes looking at them like while they're there, I'm supposed to go in. <laughs> yeah. And, and of course, uh, you know, that's her test for admittance and, you know, she gets the flag. And again, I find it kind of hard to believe that she got as far as she did before she was noticed, but, but of course she is noticed and she's cornered, but of course it's Philo they don't know the truth about you, she throws out there. Again, as if we don't have enough to consider at this point. He's clearly concerned she's going to reveal his secret and lets her go. So, you know, through these two episodes, I'm just totally captivated by the characters. I think the acting is wonderful. I think anybody that doubts Cara Delevingne's acting ability needs to sit down and watch this because she is really good. And, uh, you know, of course, the others we've seen in so many other shows, we know they're good. Yeah, they, they really fit their roles perfectly and the setting, the Victorian setting. So I, I just think they did a great job. And, and these first two episodes were perfect for a podcast because they set up everything very well. And if I could just then give our audience a warning that we're going to go into the spoiler zone. So I'll go ahead and hit the spoiler zone button. And then I'm going to share a couple of overall impressions of the series and try not to spoil Dave too much. <laughs> you are now entering the spoiler zone. All right. So if you are still listening, I assume you have watched all of the first season of Carnival Row. I just want to talk about a couple of things that this series just did so, so well. And I alluded to in our earlier discussion, Dave, that the genius of this series is that it put the prophecy regarding Breakspear and his son and the whole kidnapping and all that way in the background. So that when it came to the point when Sophie Longerbane, the daughter of the, the man who was running the opposition starts grooming Jonah to rule at her side, we think we have it all figured out. You know, it seems like all the twists have come out. We see that, Oh, here's the big reveal. And then they have another reveal <laughs> because of course they have, the big reveal about Philo, which I'm not even not even going to mention here in the spoiler zone, just because I don't want to mess Dave up. But those people who have seen it you know the big secret that Philo has, and it just becomes that much more surprising because of all the masterful Mister X along the way. Not only with Philo's investigation, but also with the whole Breakspear plot. So just brilliantly done because it was just one twist after another. And the other thing that. I have to mention in here in the spoiler zone is that the crackdown that results at the end. Okay. So all the stuff that's happened causes the powers that be to crack down on carnival row and turn it into a ghetto, put a big fence up around the whole place. And this is where you get yet another metaphor, another allegory for this fey human dynamic where the fey are an oppressed people such that it looks like in season two, Dave, we're going to be getting a concentration camp. And it's not unlike that season in, in Battlestar Galactica. 
where we had the same situation with the Cylons, keeping them on that planet. Yeah. Well, I look, you know, so far you're throwing some spoilers out there that are, again, <laughs> again, you do it so well. I mean, yeah, there's some spoilers here, but nothing I think that's going to ruin anything for me. Not going to ruin it for you. So, yeah. Well, and, and that's the drawback that you have as a podcaster. I think what what's brilliant about saying it that way is I know the people who have watched the show know what I'm talking about. <laughs> so that's what's great. And yeah, hopefully the concentration camp angle is not too much of a spoiler for you. But there's a lot of questions. I have a big question about what's going to happen with Imogen and Agraeus, because of course they got out just before the, the walls went up. And so don't know where they're going. In fact, we don't know much uh, that is going on beyond the Berg anyway. I mean, the, the pact has certainly taken over in an imperialistic way, the uh, land of Tirnanak in general, but you know, are they just trying to raid its spoils and gain its treasures for itself? But other than that, we don't know anything else about the pact um, other than some of the flashbacks that we get to the war. So I'm really wondering if in season two, we might learn a little bit more about the pact. Didn't you feel like it was kind of left pretty vague? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I guess I felt like maybe we would not ever learn. Yeah. Well, you get some in the flashbacks and you'll see when you get to that part. But uh, I think there's definitely a lot of room to show us more. And because Imogen and Agraeus, went away in a ship at the end, we might get to explore a little bit more of the world besides the Berg and the pieces of Tirnanok that we saw in flashbacks. So we'll see what happens with that. And then of course we didn't really mention him because he didn't appear in the first two episodes, but Runyon who clearly loved his little kobolds that he had his puppet show going with, and he clearly loved Ashling. So is he going to now be in a position? He's now the right hand man to Jonah Breakspear. Is he now in a position to influence the new chancellor. And I'm wondering if he's now going to be working behind the scenes to maybe help the Fae. Cause Jonah has no idea that his former tutor is a Fae sympathizer. So I think that's, it's just great how they were able to set up some potential secrets and storylines that were just hinted at here at the end of season one, but that could become full blown story arcs in season two. Cause that's a, that's a tough skill for a writer's room. I think. Oh I, yeah. No question. And and I, I just can't state enough how excited I am to get to episode three here in the next few days. Yeah. That's where it really starts to heat up. So I think you'll really like it. So uh, yeah. So hopefully you guys out there have enjoyed carnival row. And if you've only given it those first two episodes and you think, ah, oh, I'll listen to the sci-fi fidelity podcast and see what they thought of it. I, I don't plan on going to episode three. I think, that hopefully our discussion has pushed you towards maybe giving episode three a shot and more because um, it, it really does start to get super, super deep and the world building is just unmatched. So got to give it credit there. And in fact, next up on the podcast is another super rich world building series that's based on a film from the Jim Henson company back in 1982. It was a movie with puppets. And I know that kind of gets a little bit of a smirk from genre fans every now and then, Dave, right? Uh, I'm smirking as we speak. <laughs> I mean, I know that uh, your other podcast partner, Wayne, uh, was smirking at Farscape a bit, which also had some Henson characters in it. But The Dark Crystal is what we're talking about next. It takes the 1982 film and the world that it built there in a very, in very broad strokes and really gives it even more depth. 
Can't wait to talk about that one because it actually has a very similar flavor to Carnival Row, including more creatures with dragonfly wings. <laughs> so, so that's next week on the podcast. But that's it for this episode of Sci-Fi Fidelity. Keep the discussion going on social media. You can follow Den of Geek on Twitter and Facebook at Den of Geek US. And we are at Sci-Fi Fidelity. And in the meantime, we'd love it if you could rate and review the podcast wherever you access it. Be sure to send us your suggestions for future topics on social media or via email to sci-fi fidelity at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Next week.